Today is the first... Ma- uh, by the way, I mean, I heard great stuff about anybody encouraged with our Place for All People closing. We rounded the bend with Mark Buckner talking about a place for children. And then we, as I understand, uh, hit a wonderful home run with Justin speaking about a place for all races, nations, and cultures. Did I say that right? I was so, so encouraged to hear the report that God is making us a place for all people. We're transitioning to a new series today, and it's called uh, (laughs) Revival, as you can probably see behind me, More Than a Moment. Revival uh, traditionally has been known as something, maybe some people have viewed it as uh, a speaker comes in for a week to a church and rallies everybody, shares Jesus, and then, you know, you have a potluck at the end, and then, you know, it's kind of over, and then Revival will come next year. But that's not really what we're talking about when we're talking about revival. We're going to share um, about revival. Revival is a word such as the word Trinity that is not used explicitly in the Bible. You will not find the word revival in the Bible. You will find the word revive quite a few times that is connected to that. However, over the course of church history, it has been used as a term to describe God at work in and through His people in a powerful and an earth-altering way. Why don't you say earth-altering? Anybody want the earth altered? Not the physical, but in the spiritual. Would anybody like to see that happen? You know, living in an environment of continual revival is vitally important for the church in order to have the impact that God desires for us to have in the world for His glory. You see, we as the church are God's people in the world, and He's designed us to be transforming agents uh, for our world, for His glory. In order to do that, in order to impact our uh, env- environment, our cities, our regions, we, got, we need to understand that revival, what it is, and what we can do to promote it in our day. We're going to be looking in this series at key elements of revival, such as prayer. We're going to talk about prayer. We're going to be talking about repentance uh, and learn that repentance is actually a good thing. It's actually something to be desired and it brings good fruit. We're going to talk about obedience as a real key to revival. We're going to be talking about, what else? Bold proclaiming of the good news of Jesus as a part and an outworking of revival. These are some of the things we're going to be talking about over the upcoming week. But this series is not merely meant to inform you It is meant to transform us. We don't just want to hear about revival, but we want in our own personal lives and as a church, I would believe and I would hope that we would never ever be the same again. Not because this message or this series is so great, but because we caught a hold of the fact that God says, whosoever will, ask of me, I'll give them whatever they ask for. Whatever you have to have, you will have in God. What you can do without... You will do without. So I'm praying that God puts a hunger in our hearts to say, God, we cannot do without more of you in our midst. We cannot do without more of you in our city and ultimately more of you in the nations of the earth. I want to challenge each of us to believe God to change us and to embrace each of these areas that we're going to talk about in our lives. I want to give a couple of definitions of revival from from those who've been involved with it. If you look up here, Steve Hawthorne, who is um, a co-editor of the Perspectives on the World Christian Movement. Anybody out there been involved in the Perspectives course? 
Yes, okay, a couple of you. I encourage you. This is a wonderful course to get. He says, he defines revival as Christ showing up in an extraordinarily powerful new way to significantly overthrow the status quo and establish the claims of his kingdom afresh. Duncan Campbell, a Scottish preacher and leader in the Lewis Awakening, otherwise known as the Hebrides Revival, if you've heard of that, in the mid-20th century, said it this way, Revival is a community saturated with God. Wow. Just say that with me. Revival is a community saturated with God. God wants to saturate us and ultimately to saturate the communities of Boston with His glory. And Charles Finney, who knew a little bit about revival, I'll tell you more about him later, in his book Lectures on Revivals, a couple of hundred years ago, said, a revival is nothing else than a new beginning of obedience to God. Anybody want a new beginning today? Of obedience to God? Anybody want a new beginning of His grace and His power among us? It's available today, and I pray that we enter in. Let me give you a couple of characteristics of revival. Because it may seem still a little vague to you. What is revival? This is what I would see as revival. The church being renewed and those who are not in the church being brought in to the church. This is three characteristics I want to mention real quickly. Then we're going to get on to the subject of prayer. The first is the return of Christians to their first love for Jesus and their first love for others. Let's look in Revelation chapter 2 and verses 4 and 5. John, the revelator, says it this way. The re- okay. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you have done at first. This is Jesus speaking to the church uh, in the book, of, in the Revelation. And uh, the return of Christians to their first love for Jesus is always a characteristic of revival. When our... When our hearts have grown hard, God softens them. This includes repenting. That means turning around, turning away from, right? That means repenting of old ways of thinking as well as rediscovering the beauty of who God is and God's love for you. I want you to hearken back in your own life. Maybe today is that day for you, but maybe this was a day many years ago for you when Jesus first got a hold of your heart. When you first realized that God loved you and loved you so much He was willing to die on a cross for you. Do you remember the circumstances of you coming to Jesus? Or do you remember a powerful experience of His love where you were ministered to by His love? It's not only about emotion. It's not only about feeling. But it is coming back to that realization of who Jesus is and what He means in your heart. It also... Returning to our first love also consists of shedding the grave clothes of prayerlessness. Really, prayerlessness is grave clothes in our lives. And I'm so easy, it's so easy to get out of the habit of prayer and takes God's power and effort in order to get into it. But really, the return of us to our first love is that prayer becomes a natural thing to us again. There was a father and mentor of mine in the spirit named Daryl Atwood. Beautiful, beautiful man for God. He was a Texan, and so he spoke even more Texan, I think, than I do. I don't know for sure. But uh, he got married to his wife, Margie, 
uh, when they were very young. They fell in love, and his way of explaining when they got married, they were married 60 years uh, before he passed away, plus. But his way of explaining it was, I was 18 years old when Margie and I got married, and she was almost 16. Yes, he got married at a young age, but they fell in love with Jesus. They walked with him throughout the course of their life. But Daryl, I first met him when he was in his mid-60s. This man was an accomplished businessman and a humble man, but he could barely mention the name of Jesus without tears, hot tears streaming down his face. He could barely teach. I had a friend of mine, Chaz Hahn, who actually is a minister in the nations these days, is a church planner in a very hard location. Chaz confessed to me one time, he went through Daryl and his wife Margie's class on Sunday morning, and he said, I went through it three years in a row, and I counted. I'm sorry, I did. Daryl only didn't cry one time in all three years in 36 different sessions about Jesus. Well, whatever. Maybe he shouldn't have done that, but the reality was Daryl was so caught up with Jesus. Daryl lived a continually revived life in Jesus. Daryl used to mention, I'd ask him about baptism in the Holy Spirit, and when the Holy Spirit first got a hold of his life, he would talk about liquid love from heaven came down and flooded my soul. Well, that's the way he said it. But he was sensitive. He was soft. He was loving of Jesus. And guess what? This love of God, this tenderness toward Jesus resulted in him. Whenever I prayed with him, he would pray with weeping for the children at the head of every street in our city of Waco at that time who were dying without the knowledge of Jesus, who were being abused. It resulted in the love. So the first thing that revival, a characteristic, you can expect this today. You can expect this this week. You can expect it in the upcoming days. A new sense of love for Jesus and of a revelation of His love, of a tender heart toward Jesus. I pray, whatever it feels like to you or not, that liquid love from heaven would come and consume your soul. Because I tell you, we need a whole lot of more of that and a whole lot more of that for our city. The second thing as a characteristic of revival is a wholehearted obedience to God. And 2 John chapter 6 says this, And this is love, that we walk in obedience to His commands. As you have heard from the beginning, His command is that you walk in love. You know, um, Oswald Chambers, anybody read his uh, daily uh, devotional? He says it this way. If we can have that. Oh, maybe I didn't get that one. I'll just read this one to you. Oswald Chambers says it this way. The best measure of a spiritual life is not in its ecstasies, but in its obedience. The best measure of a spiritual life is not its ecstasies, though we have them at times, but its obedience. And that's what revival is all about. A new measure. You know, with our children... Sarah and I have four children, Jude six, Jake four, Liv 20 months, and Lux three months. Yes. (laughs) We teach them to obey cheerfully, say it after me, quickly, and completely. We were still training them to do that this morning at 10 o'clock when I came home before I headed up here. (laughs) But anyway, we, we as people... In God, in relationship with our Lord and Savior, should have that same attitude. With Jesus, we should be obeying Him quickly, cheerfully, and completely in what He says. And wherever that has waned in our lives, 
then we want to have Him enthroned again. Some examples of this are when God shows you or impresses on your heart to give more time to prayer, you actually obey Him and you do whatever it takes to be before Him. You see, prayer is not you convincing God that you're good enough for Him or convincing Him to love you. What prayer is, is placing yourself before a loving God so that He can reveal His love to you. It's with my children. If they're running around, the biggest thing I want sometimes is to grab them, scoop them up in my arms and hold them and let them know I love them. But many times they don't allow me to do that. That's what prayer is to me. It's slowing down enough to allow the arms of our Father to wrap around us and to allow the love of Jesus to begin to kindle in our hearts. And then what's on His heart becomes on our heart and we begin to intercede. We begin to pray for those who have never heard. When God puts it in your heart to share the good news of Jesus, with one of your classmates, with one of your work associates, with one of your neighbors, we're quick to obey. You see, I'm regretful, but I'm trusting God to change me today, that I am slow to obey at times in this area. I am much better at making excuses about, Lord, you know, uh, I haven't built up enough uh, reputation with these people in the Lord. I can't share yet. But when the Holy Spirit impresses my heart, Where is that extravagant obedience to say, whatever you want me to do, Jesus, whenever you want me to do it, I'm going to do it. That's part of this obedient heart. When God tells you to give your money away to someone, you obey without questioning. You obey. You you may get counsel on it, but you don't get so much counsel that convinces you to not have a generous heart. You give when He says so. So these are a couple of characteristics. The return of Christians to their first love. A wholehearted obedience to God. And this is a key to true revival. We've had awakenings at times in our own hearts. But true revival includes this. The saving of the lost. Those who don't yet have a relationship with Jesus. In what? Say that last part. Great numbers. Say it again. Great numbers. Say it one more time. Great numbers. That's what true revival is about. Let me... Uh, Read this. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together. These were the disciples that Jesus had left. He just ascended to heaven in one place. Suddenly a sound like a blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven, Those who accepted his, Peter's message, were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number. An example of the great numbers of people that come to Jesus in a revival atmosphere can be seen by looking at the second great awakening with Charles Finney in the Northeast. It included Boston, by the way. From 1790 into the 1830s. 500,000 people came to Jesus. 500,000 people. And you need to realize the population numbers were a lot less then. That would equal many, many more people in percentage-wise this day. And another illustration is during the Wales Revival in, uh, on, in the UK. In the early 1900s, 150,000 people within a short two, two three-year period came to Jesus out of, a, out of a country of two million. So if you extrapolate that out, you just think about how many people come to Jesus. Massive salvation. So very quickly, that's all we're, we're, we're tying a bow on giving you a little idea of what revival is all about. Return of our hearts to Jesus. Say it. 
return of our hearts to you. Why don't you pray it right now? Just ask Jesus, return my heart to you, Jesus. Lord, I do ask you to return my heart to you. That I'd love you with all my heart, all my soul, and all my strength again as I realize how much you love me. The second thing is uh, an obedience to God, a quick obedience to God. And the third thing is the saving of those who do not know Jesus. Christians get on fire for Jesus in a fresh way. Christians begin obeying Jesus again in a fresh way. And people who don't know Jesus will come to him. Now, I'm not here to put condemnation on anyone today, but I will tell you this. If Christians get on fire for Jesus again, me included, if Christians begin obeying Jesus again in great ways, people will come to know Jesus. Because when Jesus says to do something, one of the main things he tells us is to preach the good news of his holy name. All right, well... I needed to give you a little bit of an introduction to give you an idea. Do you feel you have a little bit of an idea of what I'm talking about when I say revival? Taking it out of the ethereal and bringing it into the reality? Well, I'm going to talk quickly today about prayer. Because in reality, prayer is like the big Nike swoosh, right? It's the old one in the 80s probably when, when I was some of you people's age. Just do it. <laughs> in reality, we can talk about prayer till our faces are blue. But... In reality, the Holy Spirit lives within us, and if we will commit ourselves to praying, He will do it. But I want to talk about three things today. We're going to look at this aspect of prayer and being continually revived in our personal lives and corporately as a church. This element of prayer cannot be underestimated in regards to being revived individually and corporately in prayer. We're going to see today that prayer precedes revival, that prayer releases revival, and we're going to see today that prayer sustains revival. Prayer precedes revival. Prayer releases revival. And prayer sustains revival. There is no revival apart from prayer. And apart from prayer, it's very evident we don't have revival. Lord, put a, put a desire in our hearts to pray today. Put a desire in our hearts to pray and an empowerment to do it. Jesus in the temple right after he had entered. Jesus healed the sick. Jesus raised the dead. Jesus cleansed the lepers. Jesus drove out demons throughout his ministry. And he could have used that in order to become a temporary king. Everybody wanted to make him king, but he said no way to that. He chose to go to his death in Jerusalem. He rode in on a horse... Uh, um, I mean, I'm sorry, on a colt, the foal of a donkey, he rode gently in, not coming to be served, but to serve. But the first thing that Jesus did when he entered Jerusalem, where can you tell me that he entered? Some of you scholars out there. He entered a building called the temple. He went into the temple and he was fiery. This is, the first, this is one of the most intense examples of Jesus being angry in the Bible, yet he did not sin. Jesus made a whip of cords, right? And he was whipping people out of the temple. He was throwing tables over. He was incensed. Now, why was Jesus incensed? He zeal for the house of the Lord consumed him. People were trading, people were trading in merchandise and having unnecessary gain from their trade. But one of the things that Jesus was incensed about, as you can even hear him crying out throughout the temple courts, my father's house will be called a house of prayer. 
and you have made it a den of robbers. You want to get Jesus' ire up? It's not at you. He's not mad at you. But He is mad about the fact that the life-giving, earth-altering thing that will change this world, that will cause heaven to come to earth, is prayer. And when, we're, when we are prayerless as a people, we become involved in all kinds of iniquity. Prayerless people cannot stay free of sin. I don't mean that in a condemning way, obviously. But I do say that. I'm very sensitive to the fact that I want you to receive grace today. But I do have a word that is calling you forth to Jesus. Let's look today. Prayer precedes revival. Acts 1, 12-14. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives. A Sabbath day walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew. Philip and Thomas. Bartholomew and Matthew. James, son of Alphaeus and Simon the Zealot. And Judas, son of James. This is not Iscariot, by the way. There were two. They all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with His brothers. Jesus had spoken to His disciples after He had risen from the dead. He said, I want you to wait in Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. This is after Jesus had ascended to heaven and this is before Jesus' uh, power had come down from heaven. What were they doing? Waiting on the Lord does not mean wasting your time. They were waiting on the Lord in prayer. They were constantly together calling out for God. The revival to come was preceded by a spirit of prayer. This is a quote by A.T. Pearson, who was a pastor in Philadelphia and a contemporary of Dwight Moody, who ministered in Chicago, Illinois. He says it this way, Spiritual awakenings always begin by prayer. From the day of Pentecost, there has not been one great spiritual awakening in any land which has not begun in a union of prayer through only among, though only among two or three. No such outward, upward movement has continued after such prayer meetings have declined. J. Edwin Orr, in The Light of the Nations, explains a revival in New York City that was started through a man named Jeremiah Lanfear. Jeremiah Lanfear, I get, if you're a businessman or woman out there, raise your hand. If you're a, a professional. Here's the exciting thing. The largest revival that, that is known of, at least one of the largest, was by a businessman. It was not by a clergyman. It was started by a businessman named Jeremiah Lamphere in 1857. The condition in New York City was, was, um, was difficult, to say the least. There were 30,000 um, uh, unemployed men at that time on the streets, just kind of wandering. And Jeremiah Lamphere, I'll just explain to you, he had a desire. He was hired in order to be... Uh, uh, to take up an appointment as a city missionary in downtown New York, which he was right next to where Ground Zero is. Right? Ground Zero is very close to where he was when he began this prayer meeting. And here's what his bill said. He, he distributed a wide group of tracts. He just distributed them all over the place, and it said this, As often as the language of prayer is in my heart, as often as I see my need of help, as often as I feel the power of temptation, as often as I'm made sensible of any spiritual declension 
or feel the aggression of a worldly spirit, this is what he invited the people of New York to. A day prayer meeting is held every Wednesday from 12 to 1 o'clock in the commissary building in the rear of the North Dutch Church, corner of Fulton and Williams Streets. This meeting is intended to give merchants, mechanics, clerks, strangers, and businessmen generally an opportunity to stop and call upon God amid the perplexities incident to their respective avocations. He's using 1800s language here. It will continue for one hour, but it is also designated for those who may find it inconvenient to remain more than five or ten minutes, as well as for those who can spare a whole hour. Here's what happened. At 12 noon on the 23rd of September, 1857, the door was opened and faithful Lamphere took his seat to await the response to his invitation. Five minutes went by, no one appeared. The missionary paced the room in a conflict of fear and faith. Ten minutes elapsed. Still no one came. Fifteen minutes passed. Lamphere was yet alone. Twenty minutes, twenty-five, thirty. And then at 12.30, a step was heard on the stairs. And the first person appeared. Then another, and another, and another, until six people were present. And the first prayer meeting began. On the following Wednesday, October 7th, there were 40 intercessors. In the first week of October 1857, because it continued to grow, it was decided to hold a meeting daily instead of weekly. Within six months, 10,000 businessmen were gathering daily for prayer in New York City. Within two years, a million, count them, one, zero, 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 one million people were added to the American churches who were converted to Jesus. Undoubtedly, the greatest revival in New York's colorful history was sweeping the city, and it was of such an order to make the whole nation curious. There was no fanaticism, no hysteria, simply an incredible movement of the people to pray. Is there a Jeremiah Lanfear here today who will boldly at your workplace call together, who will distribute pamphlets? I'm not telling you you have to do it the way he is, but I challenge you. To obey God and do what he's saying. Prayer, the, prayer precedes revival. Prayer releases revival. Acts 2, 1 through 4, 14 and 41. Let's read this. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. That's the same group that were praying in the previous passage I just read. Suddenly, a sound like a blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated, came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. 41, those who accepted his message were baptized, and 3,000 were added to that day. Prayer releases revival. Evan Roberts, who was a leader in the uh, revival in Wales in the early 1900s, it started in about 1904 through 1906 or 7, and it actually started... It kindled many other revivals around the world. Azusa Street uh, was started out of this revival. People would go there, receive the grace, and take it back. He said, when the churches are aroused, men of the world will be swept into the kingdom. Do you get this picture here? Swept. (laughs) When you're sweeping dust, you don't just get one particle of dust. You get millions of particles of dust when the church is aroused. Men of the world will be swept in the kingdom. A whole church on its knees is irresistible. Oh God, make us irresistible to our city again. 
Make us irresistible to our nation again. Make Jesus irresistible to them, O God, in your holy name. Amen. One of the greatest revivals, as I said, began in October 31st, 1904. 26-year-old Evan Roberts. By the way, Evan Roberts started praying for this revival at 13. So you can see in this one, prayer precedes revival. 13 years this young man called out for revival. He returned home from a ministry training program. The former miner had just quit Bible school at the urging of the Spirit. If you quit Bible school, please do it with the urging of the Spirit. Not just to quit, okay? <laughs> that evening, he and 16 young people gathered at the village ca- chapel. From this small nucleus, a revival sprang which swept through the hills and the valleys of Wales. During the next nine months, Evan Roberts led a whirlwind revival campaign through the coal mining valleys of South Wales and the slate quarries of northern Wales. Thousands were swept into God's kingdom. We remember, as we talked earlier, 150,000 were swept into God's kingdom during this season. Welsh society was profoundly affected. According to Watchman Nee, this was the greatest known revival in church history. At the height of the revival, the news media reported Robert's every move. I've seen this. In, in the newspapers in Wales, they just give each city and... The, and they were all overcome with it. I don't know the name of Welsh cities. Give me one there. Give me a Welsh city. Huh? Hardig? Cardiff. Cardiff. 2,000 people saved. Scarcely 10 youth can come together in the city without saying, praise the Lord. They would write this in the, uh, in the newspaper. It's kind of amazing. Prayer releases revival. What was he doing with these folks, this 16 young people? They were praying. And a revival was released. Prayer sustains revival. We're coming to a close here. But we're actually coming to an opening. Acts 2, 42-47. They, these are the people who received Jesus. The 3,000 who received Jesus. Devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. To the fellowship. To the breaking of bread. And to prayer. Everyone. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of the people. And the Lord added to their number daily, daily, Those who were saved. I want to refer back. I'm not going to read the whole quote, but I want to refer back to this quote I gave you a minute ago. Let's read the last part. No such outward, upward movement has continued after such prayer meetings have declined. What sustains revival is what gets a revival there. It's prayer. What is prayer? It's simply communing with God. It's us opening, God's already opened the heavens to you and me through the blood of Jesus. But it's Him, it's us opening up our hearts and becoming conduits of bringing that grace to heaven. Praise His holy and precious name. Many of you may not know that there was a daily morning prayer meeting at Park Street Church in the the 1940s. No, actually the 1840s. 1840 to 1850. Praise God for Park Street Church downtown Boston, 1840 to 1850, 
prayer meeting every morning except Sunday where they were in the worship service. Prayer meeting for 10 years. It sustained revival. It released revival in Boston. I knew I liked Park Street Church. I pray almost every day. I do pray. And what I pray for our city, Lord, let Park Street Church return to their former glory in prayer. Let our city, the water level and the spirit continue to rise in our city where Boston becomes a hard place for people to go to hell from. That's what I'm praying. But you know what I believe God spoke to me today about this? He wants me to release it to you. He wants us us as a church to do this. Not that you're not doing it. Many of you are prayer warriors as much as I am. But I believe God's given me something in my heart. And He spoke to me today. He's spoken to me over the last few days. It's time now to release this to the church at a greater measure. I want to tell you this. Over the last three years or so, I have prayed in my life. I have prayed. I could tell you stories about it many, many years ago. But over the last three years, God has given me a heart for personal prayer. God has given me a big heart for that. And... You know, God has given me grace to pray for my, for my neighbors daily, by name, around my, around my um, house. About 40 or 50 people, they receive at least five out of seven days of prayer from me for their salvation by name. Everyone. I don't think I missed one around my house now. It's about eight or nine houses. God's given me grace to pray for Mayor Walsh and for Governor Baker. And for the cabinet. You know what he also has given me grace to pray? I want you to join with me in these prayers. I pray for Governor Baker and Governor Patrick. I'm sorry. <laughs> Mayor Walsh and Governor Baker. Kind of had to switch those over the last few. <laughs> that they would come a fire for Jesus. That our state senators, state house representatives would become. That the state house and the mayor's office would become houses of prayer. That Boston would become an abortion free zone. Because of that prayer. And I say that unapologetically. With much love to anyone who has had an abortion. With much grace, much, much mercy. But that death will no longer reign in our city, but that life will rule. And God has given me that prayer that an awakening would happen in Boston. You know why He's given me that prayer? Because there have been men like Tom Griffith at River of Life Church who prayed it way before I ever got to this city. Because there are men like Dave Hill, stalwarts in the faith who works at Abundant Grace Fellowship right down the street who's a father in the Lord to me who's taught me how to pray these prayers. It's because men and women have been praying for years. But I believe what's been reported in the news, I think it was in the New York Times, I can't remember which one, as a quiet revival in Boston, Boston, God's given me this in my spirit. He's going to turn that thing loud really quick. Quiet revival. There's more churches, more church planning, but not that many people coming to Jesus. I'm not downplaying the many who have. I praise the Lord. But what makes a revival loud? It's 150,000 people out of Wales of 2 million people coming to Jesus within two or three years. That's a loud revival. Who wants a loud revival here in Boston? It's for the taking. It's not... It's not mine to take. I can't take it. Our church can't take it. We have a wonderful group of pastors working together. But I want us to be those who say, pastors and and churches in the city of Boston, CFCF, we're in for God's working of revival and prayer through us. I want you to stand right now. For those of you who are on a spiritual journey, I want you to come to Jesus today. I encourage you, if you've never given your life to follow Jesus, We're here this morning and we want to pray for you to come to Jesus.
I want to ask this. If you are willing to admit that you are a sinner and that you deserve death and spiritual separation apart from, from God, if you're willing to confess that there's nothing you can do to earn your salvation, no amount of good works that can offset the evil of rebellion in your heart, if you're willing to believe that Jesus died on the cross in your place to take the punishment of the sin that you deserve, if you are willing to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior and commit to seeking Him as your treasure for the rest of your life, I want you to raise your hand right now. Jesus died naked. Thank you. Thank you. Jesus died naked on a cross for you and me. And there's no shame in giving our lives to Him. I want to lead you, anyone else today, anyone else today that wants to receive Jesus in their heart and give their lives to Him and start a relationship with Him. I want to ask for you to pray with me, those that raise their hand. You can just pray it softly. God, I admit that I am a sinner. I was born into sin and have lived in rebellion to You. I confess that there's nothing I can do to earn my salvation. I believe, God, that You, Jesus, died on the cross in my place for my sins so that I could be forgiven and live for eternity with You, God. I receive You, Jesus, as my Lord and my Savior. And I commit to seeking You as my treasure for the rest of my life. Those of you who have prayed that prayer today, you are now born again. You're a new creation in Jesus. And you've been forgiven of every sin you've ever committed. And every sin that will ever be committed. This grace is not a license. It's not ability for you to go out and sin. It's power for you not to have to sin anymore. Praise His holy name. I welcome you to God's family. Yeah, let's clap. And I want to help you. And we here want to help you in your relationship with Jesus. I want to honor Amy Sinise for holding up a standard of prayer with us.